Sociologists tell us that the most sought-after characteristic in a pastor, the most sought-after characteristic in a a pastor is that a pastor would have an open and affirming style. And so this morning, I want to do my best to meet expectations. Uh, I want to succumb to cultural pressure, and I want to do my very best to have an open and affirming style. I want to openly affirm you uh, this morning, and uh, to do that, I'm going to ask Isaiah the prophet, a very open and affirming prophet, um, to help me. So I'm going to quote from Isaiah 63 in a moment. You can turn there if you'd like, but given that I'm being open and affirming, um, if you don't want to turn to Isaiah 64, you don't need to. I'll read it to you. Whichever one would cause you to think I'm more open and affirming um, would be just fine uh, this morning, but I do want to rely upon Isaiah the prophet to help me. Um, he is one of those feel-good prophets, and uh, I want to make sure that you feel good um, by me because I'm a feel-good pastor. And um, why are you laughing? But if it makes you feel like I'm more open and affirming to laugh, by, by all means do. Um, <laughs> sincerely speaking, I am glad you're here this morning. I'm glad that um, you're here if you've been here for 20 years as a part of Omaha Bible Church. Uh, glad that you're here if this is your very first time and you're a visitor. You're welcome here. Uh, and I, I do want to affirm your being here. And I want to affirm each and every one of you by saying that you are inherently sinful. And I say that openly and affirmingly. The very core of your being, you are a spiritual rebel. I'm being very inclusive, too. That's another thing we look for in our culture from pastors. I'm including absolutely everyone here today, including the preacher, that we are inherently sinful. And not only that, Isaiah the prophet would have us to know that even the good that we do, even the good that you've done, your very best good in the name of God, in the name of religion, your very best good, let me openly affirm you by saying, God likens to a polluted garment, an unmentionable piece of cloth to be disregarded and not spoken of in public. Feeling affirmed? Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, records these words in the same spirit. And it says in verse 6, we have all, notice the tremendous inclusivity of Isaiah the prophet, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, our sin, our unrighteousness, our law-breaking, law-breaking of God's law, like the wind, take us away. Now, that is what I call a feel-good sermon. That's a feel-good text. And you say, how could that be feel-good? It's inclusive, yes. Openly, Isaiah is, yes. Affirming, yes. But feel-good? Okay, maybe it's not feel-good, but it's with a view toward feeling good. It's with a view toward feeling better than you've ever felt before. Why? Because if you come to grips with reality and you're not 
diluted, self-diluted or otherwise diluted, and you know what's true, the result is you can feel good. You can feel better than anybody else because you have been freed from delusion. You've been freed from illusion. You've been freed from self-deception. And Isaiah the prophet is seeking to do that. That's what I'm going to seek to do this morning as well. That's what we're going to learn from Jesus in Luke chapter 7 this morning. That we all are inherently sinful. And that even our very best things that we do are tainted with sin, rebellion against God. And how could that be a feel-good sermon? Because if you know that, by God's grace you can look for the remedy. And by God's grace, you can embrace the remedy. And by God's grace, you can be forgiven. But if you don't know that you have the problem, you're going to constantly be plagued with guilt because you're guilty. It's no wonder you feel guilt if you're guilty. Okay? So in all sincerity, I'm so thrilled that we are gathered together today at Omaha Bible Church that we can learn from Jesus in Luke chapter 7. And we can learn that we are all guilty... If we're the Bible teacher kinds, or we're the prostitute kinds. The sermon title this morning is, What Kind of Sinner Are You? Or Which Kind of Sinner Are You? The reality is, everyone here is a lawbreaker in the court of God, or before the eyes of God. The question is, are you one who's self-deluded and not willing to acknowledge it, or maybe deluded by religion, not willing to acknowledge it, or are you one who's ready to... Come clean. Acknowledge your guilt so you can understand that there's grace and understand that you want to show God your gratitude. And so I trust we'll have a great time learning about this from Jesus. And let's jump right in. Let's jump right in, beginning in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, Luke seven thirty-six asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. We just need to set the context up a little bit by, re- by reading that verse and understanding that verse. So you have a Pharisee. What kind of guys are the Pharisees? Well, we're going to say they're, they're the bad guys because they butt heads, heads with Jesus all the time. So you're right if you're thinking Pharisees, they're the bad guys. If, you, if you're new to the Bible and you're thinking, okay, I guess they're the bad guys... But even if you're not new to the Bible, you need to know that the Pharisees, in so many ways, are the good guys, (laughs) okay? The Pharisees are the religious conservatives who believe the Bible is true, okay? Unlike the Sadducees, they're the theological liberals that deny supernaturalism. So you have to realize that we're supposed to see them as the good guys. They're supposed to be the good guys, which is going to show you just how upside down sin makes things. Because if, any, if anything, the Pharisees should see Jesus and say, we're experts in the Bible, we believe the Bible is true, we're inerrantists, and we believe that, that the prophets were anticipating the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, we believe in Him. So just as a reminder to you, we're so prone to thinking they're the bad guys, but, and you're right, but that just, show, that just makes the point. They're actually on the right side, and they're the good guys. But when the good guys don't see the good one, the Savior, for who he really is, it just shows you how pervasive and bad and corrupting sin is. So keep that in mind as we work through this. Also, do notice that it says in verse 36 that one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. 
We don't know why exactly. It doesn't say to get more dirt on him because this particular Pharisee was actually looking for some answers. But for whatever reason, he's investigating Jesus. Jesus is surrounded with suspicion by the Pharisees. And here this guy has a, has a festive meal. And based upon things we're about ready to read, it's one of those meals that they would have had in the Middle East where if you had enough money like a Pharisee would... Uh, you would allow you you would be able to have not only a meal inside your house, but many times if you had a special meal, weather permitting, all those kinds of things, you would actually have it on your patio. You would have it outside. It would almost be a public event, so your friends might walk by, they might participate, people in your community could walk by, they might even. And we, we have to we don't know if this is the guy's motive or not, but for some they they would do it to show that they have important people over. They're having a banquet. It was, it was more of a public event than not, is all I'm getting at. And it has to be that based upon who's going to drop by. And we'll see that in just a moment. They're reclining at the table uh, in this particular culture. If it's a feast like this, that means they're half laying down. They have their feet behind them. And that's certainly what's going on here. Now, let's keep going in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, verse 38 says, and standing behind him at his feet, because he's reclining at that table, as they would do at this feast, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And, and Dr. Luke, writing this, wants us to, to, to feel the gravity of what's going on here. He's doing a good job describing the scene. This is, this is really something to see, no matter who would be doing it. Put yourself in the Pharisee's position. You're the host. Then here you are having your party and having your special dinner banquet. And just let's just assume it's anybody. Not just this woman. Let's just assume that it's just a passerby comes. And this passerby is doing this. And it's even more graphic than we pick up in our English translation. In the Greek text, it ends up being grammatically such that first she's doing the crying thing and, 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 wipe, and the, the wetness to his feet like water. And then she moves on to using her hair to clean his feet. There's some time going on, in other words. And then it's anointing his feet with this costly perfume. And so it wasn't just a quick tear, quick wipe, quick anointing. There's something going on here that's significant, that's taking time. Uh, uh, It's something that's getting everyone's attention. Now that would be one thing if it were just anybody. But we have to remember this woman is not, not like Sunday school teacher material. Whatever her sin, it's a public sin. It doesn't say she's a prostitute. Many have thought she was a prostitute. It was something like that. It was something that was publicly known. It was the sort of thing that when you saw this particular woman on the street and you're walking with your family, you you tell your kids to turn their head the other way. Whatever it is, it's big and she is known for it. Just like the baker might be known for baking. Oh, you know, that's John the baker. Or Linda the seamstress. That woman, a sinner. You're the Pharisee. You're uncomfortable to say the least, right? What is this woman doing? This is crazy what she's doing. 
the Jewish Talmud, which is not in the Bible, but it's, it's tradition authority in writing, says that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for showing her hair in public. This woman has got her hair out, down, and she is wiping Jesus' feet? Scandalous. So the Pharisee would think. Now for the reaction. Let's keep going. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Right? So she, he knows her credibility is zero. It's negative in the negative. But now he's going to say Jesus' credibility is lacking because if Jesus really were a prophet, he would know better. So any investigation is now turning up guiltiness in this guy's head. Now, remarkably, Jesus obviously knows who she is because he even has the ability to know what this guy's thinking. Verse 40 says, And Jesus answering said to him, Well, he didn't even ask him a question, but it's great when Jesus does this, right? And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And, and he said, Say it, teacher. Say it, rabbi. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Denarii, a day's wage if you're a soldier, a day's wage if you're a day kind of worker. So it's a lot of money and it's a whole lot of money. Okay, a big difference. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Verse 43 says, Simon answered, the one I suppose... It's always good to, you know, keep your options open when somebody's asking you a question. You're going to dig yourself into a hole. This guy wasn't born yesterday. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, verse 43, you have judged rightly. And then the, I suppose, hesitancy becomes warranted in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, customary for guests in the culture. You didn't do it. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Minimum cultural respect you didn't do. That's how you view me. And then contrast that with her. And then just some, some masterful, juicy irony in all of this. The Pharisee is a teacher. That's what he's known for. He's the esteemed teacher of God's holy law. The prostitute or whatever kind of sinner she is, up until now is recorded as saying nothing. Jesus says, okay, Mr. Teacher, learn from the one who hasn't said anything. The sinner. Total role reversal. You need to learn something from her. You'd think it would be, woman, you need to learn from the teacher of God's law. Does the opposite. Does the opposite. 
silently instructing the instructor. Verse 45 says, you gave me no kiss. Again, think Eastern culture, basic respect. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but, but she has anointed my feet with ointment, with, with expensive perfume. There's a contrast in there and even in wording. You've done nothing and she's expressed this extreme kind of gratitude beyond respect. Then verse 47 says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. We'll come back to that in just a little while, but let's keep the narrative flowing. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. In one level, you've got to say, if you, if you remember, and I know we haven't been in Luke lately, but if you remember the flow of things, you, you've got to say after that, you go, uh-oh. Because Jesus has done this before. Jesus has forgiven people's sins before and it's led to controversy. And do notice, Jesus doesn't say, may God forgive you. Jesus doesn't say, uh, based upon the authority, you know, outside. He's doing it. He's doing it. Verse 47 begins with, I say to you. Not the Lord says or the Lord will. The emphasis is on Him. You see, Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He's the one who forgives sins. Luke chapter 5 is where we saw it earlier. Luke 5.20 And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies, lies about God, who can forgive sins but God alone? That was 5.21. And they're half right. I mean, they're fully right in a certain sense. Who can forgive God? Who can forgive sins except God alone? Well, nobody. Connect the dots. Jesus is showing He's more than a prophet. He's none other than the God-man. At this time, Jesus doesn't, doesn't answer the objections. Oh, by the way, verse 49, I don't think we read that yet, says, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? More literally in the Greek text, who is forgiving sins. This is what he does. Jesus ignores them there at this time and doesn't answer their suspicions, though he could have. Verse 50 then says, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. (laughs) You see... It is a feel-good sermon after all. If it's based upon this passage. Go in shalom. Go in peace. 
Your faith has saved you. You, you've been, you. You've been rescued. You've been saved from the judgment of God for your sins. He acknowledges she has many sins, but your faith has saved you. You're, you're saved. You're set free from yourself, from your sin, from your guilt, from the bondage to sin. Ultimately, ultimately, and especially from the wrath and judgment of God that you deserve for your sins. You've been set free, and then it's go in peace, go in shalom. objective peace. She has peace with God now, like Romans 5 talks about. She's no longer in conflict with God. God's judgment is no longer bearing down upon her. But how about peace? Therefore, based upon that objective relational peace with God now, she has the the psychological subjective peace herself. She can feel good. She has no basis for feeling good based upon her actions. But based upon Jesus' power to say, your sins are forgiven... I'm at peace with God, shalom. I'm also at peace (laughs) experientially, shalom. And guess what? When you have peace with God, you sense peace and you you feel good. (sighs) You feel great. (laughs) You say, this is good news. This is gospel news. This brings me peace. This is the most amazing thing ever. This is absolutely amazing. Please notice, both are sinners. Right? She's known reputationally for a sinner, being a sinner because it's external, known. But Jesus is certainly making the point that both need to be forgiven. Isn't it interesting how prostitute types are more prone to seeing their sin. And Pharisee types who say they believe the Bible is true are far less prone to seeing their sin. And again, it comes back to that question, which kind of sinner are you? One who's in denial and therefore in trouble because there's not forgiveness or the one who cops to it. says, I agree with you, God. That's the forgiven person. It's very simple. What I'd like to do now, if you want to keep your Bibles open, we'll come back to some of the passages here. But what I'd like to do now is conclude um, with five questions. Five questions that will help us interpret the passage a little bit better. Five questions, some of which will do that. Some will help us to think and apply this better. Some of us, uh, it will help us think about how to respond. Uh, It's a pretty straightforward passage, but I would like to have us invest a little bit of time now uh, in answering these questions. The first one's an interpretive question. Um, What comes first? Our love for Christ or Christ's forgiveness of us? It's a theological question. It's a biblical question. Which comes first? Our love for Christ or Christ's forgiveness of us? It's a really important question. And the pastor in me, the discipler in me, wants to make sure we talk about that here because it's an important one. It's so important that it might cause you to want to go to a different church. Okay? And if we isolate a small portion of our passage, you're going to answer that one way. But if we look at a little bit bigger portion of the passage, you're going to answer it a different way. And if you look at the whole of this gospel, you'll answer it that second way. And if you look at the 
gospel accounts, you'll answer it that second way. And you look at the New Testament, you'll answer it that second way. And you look at the whole Bible, you'll answer it that second way. But if you only isolate one little statement in our text, you'll answer it in such a way that it really would be best if you acknowledge that you're part of a different religion other than the religion promoted at Omaha Bible Church. Because one way of looking at it says, we do something, God responds, He rewards us for our fidelity, our faithfulness. Look at it another way, more fully, you say, He forgives first, and we respond with gratitude. I'm one for saying, and I'll say it till the day I die, whether that's today or in 25 years. You can make the Bible say anything. Not in a postmodern sense, like it's meant to do that. But you can make most any piece of literature do that if you isolate things from the bigger picture and see the author's intent. And this is a great opportunity for me to try to help you just to be a good Bible student. Now, if you want to start a cult, um, you know, just isolate things. And you know what? I guarantee you people will follow you. <laughs> okay, I mean, you're, you're, you're set. It might be a good idea. Um, not in the long run, um, but you could become famous and be on TV and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's really an important issue. Which comes first? Our love or Christ's forgiveness? Well, verse 47 is the verse I'm getting at, and hopefully some of you caught this earlier. Uh, it says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, if you just isolate that right there um, and you say, I'm going to build my whole theology on that out of context, in isolation, um, again, Omaha Bible Church probably isn't going to be a very good church for you. Um, you probably don't want to find a Protestant church. Because um, you could say right there, and I take the Bible literally, and we should all be careful about what we mean when we say we take the Bible literally. Um, it looks a lot like, well... You do the right thing, you love God first, and then He'll forgive you. But I totally reject that and suggest that you do too by looking at the bigger picture of the whole verse, the whole book, the whole testament, the whole canon. If you keep reading in that verse, verse 47, but he who is forgiven little loves little. That right there helps us. I mean, in, in one sense, if you only isolate that, you'll say, well, then it's a flip of a coin. The Bible teaches both. I do like postmodernism. It's whichever one you mean it to be. But at best, it at least causes you to go, well, that seems to be saying the opposite. At least helps you to understand and say, oh, forgiven little, loves little. The love is the response. Our love is the response. And then you look at the bigger picture of what's happening with Jesus. Jesus already has a reputation for forgiving sins. The woman knows she's a sinner. She comes to him desperate. And what does he say to her? Yes, he pronounces forgiveness. But he does say, your faith has saved you. We're going to talk more about that. Not your acts of religious devotion. You have to put it all together in the bigger picture and see what's going on here. And you're going to say, I think I'm, I think I'm seeing it here. And then you start stepping outside of the passage and you say, okay, what about Romans chapter 5? And it's while we're sinners, Christ died for us. That he declares righteous the ungodly, not the ones who show love first. Chapter 4, chapter 5. So just keep your brain turned on and have better ethics 
than just isolating a portion of a verse because if that's what you do, you're off and running representing a different religion. God loved us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so just remember big picture, and even in our passage, big picture, and I think it'll help you interpret the Bible as intended. Now, I don't want to get too far into this, but uh, if you look at verse 48, um, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Here's where some of you can check out if you want, but one, one Greek grammarian, the New Testament's written in Greek originally, has this to say about that passage that goes to this argument that I'm presenting. The perfect tense of this word, are forgiven, repeats the key verb of verse 47 and denotes that she is in a state of forgiveness. It suggests that the forgiveness began somewhere in the past. So the, the point being, even grammatically, it supports the point that she is already forgiven and now she, Jesus is making a declaration of what is already true because she came to him, the one who has the power to forgive. Okay, enough of that for now. Number two, next question. And they won't all be that ethereal, I promise. Because remember, I'm trying to be open and affirming and quoting Greek grammarians probably isn't very open and affirming. But anyway, um, let's move on to a little bit different and more practical. Number two, how can faith save and bring peace? Still a little theoretical, theological, but so important. If you're here today, you probably want peace. Not only do you want peace psychologically, but you want peace positionally before God. How can faith bring salvation and peace? Now, if we were to go to lunch this afternoon for Father's Day, thank you for inviting me. Your treat, how nice. I have five kids and a wife and we're hungry. So thank you for inviting me to lunch. Um, if we were to go to lunch today and someone were to bring up this question, how can faith save and bring peace? it would be a good thing. Because we're so used to going to church and using words like faith and salvation that we don't even know what they mean. And then we start talking to people who are outside of church culture and then it's really confusing. Let me just do a little shocker here and say, faith can't bring peace. Faith can't bring peace. Faith can't bring salvation. If you just keep it there on that level, it can't be. Faith? But this is how we talk in our culture. Just have faith. Your faith will get you through. Now, on one level, it's wonderful because we would say we believe in, as Christians, we believe in salvation by faith alone. But on another level, that good shorthand is awful for what it teaches us or doesn't teach us because it's shorthand. What we mean is faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone saves. That's how it can save and bring peace. But I'm going to belabor this a little bit because we've we got to think rightly about this. Faith in and of itself is no good. Faith means trust. So, okay, I, I, I need you to have peace. Just trust. And what's implied in that is you're just trusting in whom? Self. Your faith implied in yourself because you're strong-willed. You're a strong person. Your faith in yourself will bring you peace? No, it won't. Certainly not peace with God. It certainly won't save you from His judgment. And so I, I want to encourage you that, that when we talk about faith, and Jesus says, 
your faith has saved you. He doesn't mean your faith in yourself. What has she got going for her? Again, think bigger picture. What did Jesus mean? She came to him, the one who already has a reputation for forgiving people's sins. She came to him and he says to her, your faith has saved you, your faith in me. Your faith in me. Faith saves because it's trust not in yourself. It's trust in the work of Christ. Then it makes a huge difference. Now this woman, think about it. If her faith was in herself, she'd be thinking, man, I'm a prostitute. Or whatever she is. Just have faith. How sinister of Jesus to tell her that. Just have enough faith in yourself. <laughs> She's like, what, do you know what I do? Do you know what the law of God says? Are, are you crazy? That person can have peace because that person isn't trusting in themselves. They're trusting in a perfect law-keeping Savior who did everything right. And you say, ah, I get it. I can have peace. I, I can have psychological peace too because now we're not talking about faith in faith or some kind of weird conceptual idea. This is actual faith in an actual historic person who actually rose from the dead and actually ascended into heaven. So this isn't fantasy land. And so my peace is based upon the objective reality, peace with God, and that's a good and true and right kind of psychological peace that it brings as a result. It's a confidence kind of peace. I'm so thankful, so thankful that we can think about these things and think clearly about these things and know these things. Let me encourage you to not only own this for yourself, but let me encourage you to own this as a missionary. Own this as a missionary in the United States of Nebraska. <laughs> in Omaha. Here's what missionaries do. What they're really good at, they're supposed to be good at doing communicating the truth of the gospel that doesn't change in any culture. It's always the same. But to communicate it to people in different cultures in ways they can understand it. I got to tell you, you are so in a foreign land in Omaha, Nebraska. Because when you say faith, the people who hear you think faith in self. They don't get it. So don't use shorthand. Maybe don't use the word faith unless you can explain yourself. We're talking about trusting in, depending upon the one who actually accomplished redemption in time, space, history. If you trust in Him, you will be spared. You will be saved. His perfect righteousness, His perfect law-keeping is credited to you. And based upon who you're talking to and how much they know or they don't know, you can make that clear. You can explain that to anybody if you work at it, being able to explain it to somebody. It's crucial that we get that. And this passage just gave me a great opportunity to remind you and try to help you to be a better missionary maybe than you're currently being or better than I'm even being. And do notice, I'm not reading anything into the passage as far as big picture. But I am taking that isolated statement and helping you to realize Jesus, what Jesus didn't mean. 
He didn't mean faith in faith. He didn't mean faith in self. He clearly means faith in him. And we, we got to get good at doing that and helping people understand that. Most people we talk to, most people I talk to at least who are not Christians, many who say they are Christians, they're thinking faith is where you turn your brain off and you trust in insanity. And you trust in something that didn't actually happen. You trust in yourself. We're not talking about history. We're not talking about fact. Now we're talking about faith. Or we're talking about faithfulness, commitment. That is not how Jesus is using it. And it's a great way for you and for me to love our neighbor, to help them to understand. They might still reject. But when you're saying faith, you don't mean confidence in self or confidence in fantasy. You're talking about confidence in a historical person who did something. Next question. Two more, right? No, three more. Man, I got to hurry up. It's Father's Day. And I'm being open and affirming. Um, quickly, number three. How does this relate to worship? How does this relate to worship? This is a great worship passage. The woman is clearly showing devotion. She's clearly worshiping Jesus and she is showing worship and affection and gratitude toward Jesus in a way that is unmistakable and it is unreserved. And the Pharisee is doing anything but worshiping. What's the difference? The difference ends up being the one knows she's guilty and therefore she understands grace. And therefore, she understands worship or gratitude. I wish my son Owen was in here because he understands how this works conceptually, at least, because it's guilt, grace, and gratitude. Okay, so I want you to understand guilt, grace, and gratitude. This Pharisee is showing no gratitude. He's showing no worship. That makes total sense. It makes total sense because he doesn't understand grace. And that makes total sense because he doesn't understand grace, a free gift, something you don't earn, because he doesn't understand his own guiltiness. Now let's apply that. To the degree that you don't understand your guilt, you won't understand grace. And now it makes sense to me why you don't show gratitude. Worship is different. In the Bible, sometimes it's corporate worship where the saints gather together. We see it in heaven. We see it on earth when the church gathers and we express our gratitude to God together. Or worship like Romans 12, 1 would talk about. It's, it's individual in everything we do. If you're not a worshiper, you're not a gratitude person to God for His great redemption, I know why. I want you to know why. So let me openly affirm you. You don't understand grace. And there's a reason why you don't understand grace. It's because you think you're a good person. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. So if you're not a worshiper, you're not a gracer, you're not a guilter, but one thing you are is somebody who says, God, you're a liar. God, the God of heaven and earth, says, 
No one is good. No, not one. Romans chapter 3. Psalm 14. Both Testaments. Doesn't mean we don't do relative good, but true, genuine good that actually pleases God. Doesn't happen. One way you can tell if you get grace is to see if you're a worshiper. Just how it is. What a great day today would be for me to say, I want you to feel good about that. (laughs) Understand misery first, then understand grace, then understand gratitude, and then things will begin to make sense. Just for reference, 1 John chapter 8 verses... First, excuse me, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10 would be that passage. I said there are five questions. Let's just do four. Number five, finally. I combined three and four. Let's do number five, which is really four, and that's really confusing. Um, final question. Have you repented of your righteousness? I'm borrowing that from someone. I'd give him credit, but I don't know who came up with it first. Have you repented of your righteousness? Back to Isaiah 64. Because your righteousness in the eyes of God, your, your obedience to God is a way of putting righteousness. Your obedience to God, God says, is like a filthy, polluted garment. It's offensive to him. How about that? (laughs) Why does God do that? Because he doesn't want us to be self-deluded into thinking our good deeds are actually good. They're corrupt. He wants us to be in touch with reality, not in denial, so we can see Christ and his righteousness being what we really need. How about this? I've sinned so much today. I deserve to go to hell so many times over. And I'm a preacher. I believe the Bible is true like Pharisees did. I believe it's all true. I believe, I believe that. For sure I do. So many of you do. But I'm standing before you as somebody who knows that I've already sinned enough today. I'd already sinned enough in the first hour of my life today to deserve to go to hell. You say, why would you say that? I mean, in so many levels, I've had a great day. It was a great day. I woke up this morning. I didn't kick the dog. I mean, I'm, I, mean I, I did some good today. I prayed for other people today. That's pretty good. That's better than some days. Right away when you wake up, I prayed for others. I, I took the dog out, even though the dog should have been taken out by the kids. I, I wasn't bitter. The dog was supposed to be in the kennel, but it wasn't. I wasn't bitter. Uh, I made my own breakfast. It's Father's Day. I wasn't bitter. (laughs) I made the coffee. It's Father's Day. I wasn't bitter. I mean, I had what you might call a stellar morning. My sermon was ready. I was all set to go. I have got a good attitude. Come rolling into Omaha Bible Church. I obeyed the driving uh, traffic laws on the way here, and they're too low. Right? And I, I didn't complain. I mean, I've just been, it's all cylinders. I did premarital counseling during the Sunday school hour where I really would have liked to have done something else. Um, I'm just being a little silly here. It's been a good day. 
Why in the world would I say I need to repent of my righteousness? Because everything has been tainted by my nature and I'm a sinner by nature. And also think with me, sin is not just doing the wrong things. Sin is not doing the right things. Think with me one more time. God's law at its very basis, basic level says, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's my problem. Because even the right things I did today, I, I, I didn't do it all the right things. And even the right things that I did, I didn't do with perfect motives. Out of pure, genuine, earnest, fully, complete, earnest, good motives out of love for God. I've never done that for a second in my life. And neither of you. And so even our good deeds, our righteous deeds, Isaiah 64 says, are like a polluted garment. And you say, that's a bummer. Well, it is a bummer if there's no such thing as Jesus as a substitute. Let's come clean. Let's acknowledge what God, is, God knows to be true and most of the people around you right now know to be true. You're guilty. Trust in Christ who's not guilty. Trust in Christ who gave himself up for us so that he might bring us to God. It's so freeing and so awesome and brings shalom on so many different kinds of levels. This is just ABC Christianity, but I want you to leave not trusting in your righteousness because your righteousness is no good. Now, thankfully, the Spirit of God comes in us when we're Christians and starts producing fruit, and now there's at least some good that we do. But we still aren't glorified, and until we see Christ and are made like Him, I still lead a tainted life. Trust in Christ like a prostitute would have to. Don't be like the Pharisee who thinks he's okay because he believes the Bible is true. Lord, thank you for this morning. and Thank you for Omaha Bible Church and the opportunity we have to gather like this to yet again one more time be reminded of the great good news that is in Christ Jesus who is a perfect Savior. We, we delight in the reality that you said from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We're so delighted to know that if we're trusting in Him, we're united to Him and therefore because of what He's done, you're pleased with us. And this gives us hope and this gives us confidence and this promotes perseverance. This causes us to want to be good ambassadors, causes us to, be want, to want to be good missionaries. Help us with this, to speak good news and to do so in a way that comes from a heart filled with gratitude. Help us now to respond. We're guilty. We've experienced grace and now we can express our gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.